The sermon this evening is based on, again, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. We're up to chapter 6. And again, tonight we're worshiping under the theme of united to Christ, which means we can put sin to death as we are raised in Christ. We're dead in Christ and raised in Christ, and now we are united to Christ. And what is that? what are the implications of that? What does that look like now? Uh, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, For if we have been united with him, with Jesus, in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has any mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Now, here's the key. In the same way, you count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but you are under grace. This is God's word. I'm going to start the same way tonight that I started last week, which is simply by reminding you that the Apostle Paul has a major shift in his letter from chapters 1 to 4 to chapters 5 to 8. Uh, you can see it linguistically, you can see it thematically, there's a major shift going on there. And in chapters 1 to 4, he has gone to great detail to explain this like otherworldly, unheard of, revolutionary idea that we are saved by grace through faith. In other words, the world has never known this idea before. You are not saved by who you are, your pedigree. You are not saved by what you do your performance, you're saved by God's grace through faith. It's not about who you are and what you do. It's about who Jesus is and what he has done. Now, Paul anticipates that the natural response to that is going to be simply this, that for somebody who knows, okay, I'm saved uh, apart from what I do. I'm saved. All my sins are completely washed away. The natural response of the flesh is, what difference does it make how I live my life? Why would my sins make any difference at this point? If my salvation, if the big idea is my salvation comes completely apart from my own doing, then why do my sins matter? Why would that be transformational to my lifestyle at all? Or let me put this in very practical terms. I've had something said to me like this multiple times every year since I began ministry. I remember the first time it was said to me, a young woman said, look, pastor, I get I'm probably not supposed to have sex with my boyfriend. I get that's probably not what God wants. But, pastor, I also trust that Jesus died for all of my sins at the cross. He took them all away and therefore I guess I just don't see that it's that big of a deal. I've had some variation of that said to me countless times throughout ministry. And the interesting thing is I know that for every one individual who's bold enough to actually say that to a pastor, there are dozens and dozens of other people out there who are thinking the exact same thing right there along the way. 
Paul is anticipating that exact logic right here. And what he's saying in our lesson is sin is not just bad behavior. Sin is not just wrongdoing. Sin is not even just a violation of God's design for you and for human flourishing and human prospering. Sin is slavery. Sometimes it's unrealized slavery, which is the only slavery that's worse than actual slavery. It's got you and you don't even know it's got you. It runs your life. It runs you into the ground. And the Apostle Paul is saying in our lesson here that Jesus came not only to deliver you from the penalty of sin eternally, in other words, the eternal consequences of like hell, he also came to deliver you from the power of sin in your life right now. Satan's constant temptation and deception of us. One of the commentators that I regularly read on this particular section, I thought, gave a fantastic visual. Uh, And he said, look, too many Christians are betweeners. Here's what he meant. They live between Egypt and Canaan, saved, but never really satisfied. They live between Good Friday and Easter, believing in the cross, but not, never actually entering into the power of the glory of the resurrection. And he closes with this verse in this section from Colossians chapter 3, which is in like one line, it's exactly what the Apostle Paul is unpacking here in Romans 6. And he says, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So the big idea tonight is if we are united to Christ, it empowers you in an otherworldly way to put to death the sin that exists in your life. And we're going to walk through that teaching through these points. We're going to say, in order to put to death the sin in your life, because you're united to Christ, you have to, want number one, consider yourself in Christ. We'll talk about what that means. It's all thinking. It's all considering. It's all contemplating. Number two, then you have to actively not, not offer yourselves as instruments of wickedness, but proactively offer yourselves as instruments of righteousness. Okay? So consider yourself in Christ actively, uh, not in, don't offer yourself as instruments of wickedness, but do offer yourself as instruments of righteousness. First of all, consider yourself with Christ. And the oddest thing about this text, the epistles, I've always had, you know, when I've studied the epistles, uh, they're very easy to read through and not comprehend exactly what it is that you're reading because it's a lot of churchy sounding words and it sounds like a lot of like white noise, religious white noise sometimes and you have to slow down and meditate on what it is that you're reading. For me, what's really helpful is I look for things that aren't what the, said the way you'd expect them to be said. And in this particular text, very clearly the thing that's odd if you slow down and read it is the tenses. The tenses, like the verb tenses. The Apostle Paul, this is a recurring theme throughout his writing in the New Testament. He did it just in Colossians 3, which I just read. He does it right here. When he talks about your relationship to Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, he almost always talks about the relationship in past tense. In other words, he doesn't just talk about the death and resurrection in past tense. He talks about you in relationship to that as a former you in past tense. So, for instance, here's what he says. He says in this text, if you have been united with him in a death like this, you have been united and your old self was crucified with him. And if we died with Christ, you say, I'm sitting right here in a, pop, in a pew right now. How have I died? He, from God's perspective, the timeless God who exists outside of time and space, uh, we always see time as linear, but he, you know, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. When he perceives you through the cross of Jesus Christ, you're already dead. 
you were already dead in Christ. And what Paul is starting to do is he's starting to tease out some of the implications of that in the rest of this text. He says, look, if you're already dead in Christ, then we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. If you're already dead, then the body ruled by sin should be done away with. If you're already dead in Christ, we should no longer be slaves to sin. And if you're already dead in Christ, then we believe that we are also fully going to live with him. The Apostle Paul is saying, look, if God already counted Jesus' death as your death, if he already counts Jesus' payment for sins as your payment for sins, then it also stands to reason that the spot that Jesus has secured in heaven is also right now your spot. That Jesus' new life and the power in it right now is your new life. So, Paul says, live accordingly. If Jesus has undone all of the penalty of sin, you have to live as though Jesus has also undone all of the power over sin in your life. Faith always implies that you start living. Faith always implies that you start living your life as though God's promises are completed facts. Now, how do you do that? How do you live in accord with your status of being freed from sins? The Apostle Paul uses now a present tense verb. He says, if you died with Christ, if you are raised with Christ, if that means you will be this, this, and this, the one thing he says you should do in the present is what? Count yourselves. Present tense. Keep counting yourself. Dead to sin, but alive in Christ. He says, you've got to consider. You've got to think about this regularly, every day, because you forget this overnight. Every day, a Christian has to wake up and say, look, here's who I am, here's who I now am because of what Christ has already done. If Jesus already paid for all of my sins, all my shame right now is gone. It doesn't matter how I feel. It doesn't matter how I feel about my mistakes. It doesn't matter how many times other people point out how many mistakes I've made. I have no shame. Absolutely experiencing no shame right now because it's already dead. It's already paid for. And for that matter, not only has Jesus already taken away all of my sins, but he's also gifted to me his righteousness. And what that does is it gets rid of any performance anxiety and pressure in life. Because the best thing that anybody could ever possibly produce, the one thing that actually matters is the righteousness of God. Jesus already did it and he already gave it to me, so it's already mine and I don't have to have any pressure about performance anxiety moving forward. Furthermore, if the cross is not only done and I'm wrapped up in it, but if the empty tomb is done and I also am wrapped up in that resurrection, I know exactly where I'm going. There's zero uncertainty about where my eternal future will land. And if that's the case, then all the uh, worry and chaos, it should generate absolute calm in my life right here and right now because I know exactly how the end of my life looks. It's with me in paradise with Jesus. That has to produce calm right now. If I am wrapped up in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if I lose my identity entirely in him, then and only then am I free to become the person that I've always been meant to be. Um, Interestingly, did you ever think that maybe one of the reasons why God hasn't let you become great in one of the ways that you want to become great? Because we all want to become great in something. You know, it doesn't matter what it is. It's it's different for each of us. Your beauty or your wealth or your health or your your, uh, popularity or your career aspirations. Did you ever think maybe the reason why God hasn't let you reach great in the world's eyes 
is perhaps because if you achieved great, it would be such an overwhelming temptation for you and all of your identity to become wrapped up in that thing. And that would be the worst possible spiritual thing that could happen to you. So God maybe doesn't allow it. But the greatest thing that any human could ever be is united to Christ. And it happens like this, interestingly enough. It happens, so imagine somebody who gets rich. How does somebody become rich? Probably a fascinating debate. I think there's maybe two ways. First way we tend to think of is you work very hard for it. So there's maybe a level of brilliance. There's a level of tremendous effort. There is persistence. There are sacrifices made in order to become tremendously rich. In other words, you became rich through a a great deal of faithful work. Now let's say that person gets married. The second person, the spouse, how do they become rich? Is it through lots of work and lots of effort and lots of sacrifices? Nope. They get rich by something called legal union. It's just, it's grace. You see, all of the earning was all through the work and the effort and the brilliance of the first person. The second person got it entirely by way of legal union. Uh, Even our secular courts understand this completely. So long as there's not like this prenup thing, if you two get married, all of this stuff goes equally is owned by the two of you both. First person got rich through all their efforts. Second person got rich just by the legal union. The Apostle Paul is saying you're the second person in that analogy. Because you are united to Jesus Christ, every single thing that he is, every single thing that he earned, and every bit of rule over creation that he will have for all eternity, you also will have because you are completely united to him as the bride of Christ. That is a spectacular identity. There's only one catch attached to receiving it. If you are to receive the identity of being his bride and being wrapped up in him, it requires you to let go of your old identity. And that means you have to let go of all of your old goals. All of that stuff about my hopes and my dreams and my aspirations for my life and those desperate grasps at power and control and those anxieties and those old idols and those false identities and here's the way I need things and want things to be in order to be happy, you count them dead. It's dead to me. Count yourself alive only in Christ Jesus. It's much better. Now, the Apostle Paul says, if you do that, If you recognize yourself, your identity is wrapped up in the fact that you are united to Christ in his death and resurrection. This is the new you. This is the new self. There's two implications that always come with this. First implication, he says, is it means you will put to death uh, the parts of your body and the parts of your life that want to become instruments of wrath. He says specifically in verses 12 and 13, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. Uh, The Bible says that sin, there's there's choices involved, but the Bible does not say that sin is merely a choice. Rather, what the Bible says is sin is primarily serving a false spiritual master who tricks you into becoming enslaved to the desires of this world. Now, it says evil desires there. If you see at the end of verse 12, it says evil desires. We've talked about this before. The Greek does not say evil desires. And I want to be sympathetic to our 
translators here because they got a tough job. But in Greek, it doesn't say evil desires. The Greek word is epithemia. Themia means desire, and epi is a prefix that means hyper or over. These are over-desires or hyper-desires. In other words, according to the Bible, sin is not simply a desire of bad things. The problem is that we wrongly desire good things more than God. We have too passionate of desires for these good things as sources of our identity and our security and our hope for the future. And these hyper-desires, this is what everything we spent our time on in Romans chapter 1. Those hyper-desires, those idols, that's what drives all the bad behavior that exists amongst humanity. When we serve a sp- false spiritual master, what we end up doing is we offer the parts of our lives, our thoughts, our words, our wealth, our bodies, as instruments of wickedness. And the Apostle Paul is suggesting to us that even for people who are redeemed by Jesus Christ, even after we are considered by God to be wrapped up in Christ's death and resurrection, the biggest problem we face is we forget. We stop counting ourselves as united to Christ in his death and resurrection. We forget who we are. We forget who our master is. We stop thinking. We lose consciousness. We forget, and that leads to destructive behavior. In fact, one of the uh, commentators that I've brought up that I'm using through this summer series in specific, because he has a series of commentaries uh, on Romans that I find very helpful, is a 20th century minister by the name of uh, English minister, Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he talks, he's writing about this particular section, and he, Paul's writing about enslavement to sin, and Dr. Lloyd-Jones talks about the, the dynamics of slavery and how they can impact us with sin. And here's what he says. He says, Take the case of those poor slaves in the U.S. about 100 years ago. They were in a terrible condition of slavery. Then the Civil War came, and as a result of that war, slavery was abolished in the U.S. But what actually happened? All the slaves, young and old, were given their freedom. But many of the older ones who had endured long years of servitude found it very difficult to understand their new status. They heard the announcement that slavery was abolished and that they were free, but they were tempted to forget this over and over. And when they saw their old master coming near them, they began to quake and tremble and wonder whether or not they were going to be sold. He goes on to say, this is very interesting, he says, you can still be a slave experientially even when you are no longer a slave legally. He says, whatever you may feel, whatever your experience may be, God tells us here through his word that if if we are in Christ, we are no longer under the rule and reign of sin. And he says, and I fall, if I fall into sin, and he says, I do, this side of heaven, Christians still struggle with sin. If I fall into sin as I do, it is simply because I do not realize who I am. Realize it, consider it, count it, remember it. So what does it actually look like to not let sin boss you around as master? If Christians, to some extent in this lifetime, you know, on this side of heaven, if we're going to struggle with sin, what does it mean when the Apostle Paul says, uh, put sin to death in your life, be dead to sin? If it doesn't mean you can't, there won't be any sins in your life, what does dead to sin mean? It means you can't live in your sins. That means at least two things. It means, number one, you can't tolerate sin. 
it can't just be okay. Christians, of course, Christians sins, but they grieve their sins. They're uh, repulsed by their sins. They're offended by their and more offended by their own sins than they are by any other person's sins. And furthermore, what what being dead to sin must also mean that you can't perpetuate sin any longer. Of course, Christians struggle with sin. Uh, But you can't remain there permanently. You can't willfully and volitionally continue on in that same type of behavior because the distaste for sin in Christians is constantly fighting against it. Paul is not saying that Christians will not have individual sins in their lives. And Paul is not saying even that Christians won't struggle with maybe even habitual sins in their lives. But what Paul is saying is Christians cannot deliberately continue on in sin without distaste or diminishment. Now, What that means, and it's kind of a heavy truth, but what it means is that some of us in here tonight might need to go home this evening and take some drastic steps with this knowledge. Um, If overspending is a temptation for you, one of the things you need to do when you go home tonight is you need to cut up your credit cards. If um, gossip and slander and judgment and comparisons are temptations for you online, you've got to get off social media. It's not, you can, you can actually totally live just fine and healthy lives without social. If, gossip, if it is in any way, shape, or form, gossip and slander and constant comparison and constant judgment, if that is a temptation, kill it. Get off social media. If politics turn you into an animal, Get out of politics. The political system will continue to exist even without your commentary along the way. Get out of politics. If internet pornography is a constant temptation for you, get rid of the internet. And if you can't get rid of the internet, put filtering devices and accountability devices on every single thing you have that connects to the internet. Your your laptop, your gaming system, your phone, your iPad. I don't care. Put it on all of that stuff and also find a Christian friend who is not judgmental but who is firm and loving and will encourage you in the right direction. Because you got to kill that thing. Uh, if you can't drink without always becoming drunk, get rid of all the alcohol in your house and by all means don't have another drink. You need to kill it. Sin nature does not work like our bodies. It doesn't just gradually die. You have to actively kill it and then actively flee it. Every day because it functions like a zombie. It keeps you kill it once and it rises back up and it's trying to get you again. You have to actively kill it and flee it. And if any part of you would be an instrument to sin and an instrument for wickedness, cut it off. Jesus says, gouge it out. The Bible takes sin that seriously. And for those of us who are united to Jesus, then we take sin that seriously too. The Apostle Paul actually gives us a fantastic piece of advice if you don't want to offer yourself, if you want to not offer yourself as an instrument of wickedness, one of the best ways to overcome that is to instead offer yourself as an instrument of righteousness. Don't do this, but fill it with this. Uh, One of the things in years, about 10 years of working with guys on personal discipleship in their lives something that has become an undeniable fact for me. I'm sure this is true probably of women too. I just have more experience working with guys on this. An undeniable fact is when temptation is the greatest, it's when individuals are bored, alone, and feeling negative. 
By bored, I mean unstructured. By alone, I mean not around other people that they can hold accountable or that would call them out on anything. And uh, by feeling negative, it's just, just what I mean. If it's sadness and anger and bitterness and those types of, th- types of things that cause you to feel pity for yourself. Bored, alone, and feeling negative. What that means is that proactively, the best way to not offer yourself to, in- to be instruments of wickedness, but to offer yourself as instruments of righteousness, is to do the opposite. Instead of being unstructured and uh, alone and negative, be active, be with other human beings, and do it in positive ways. Now, the Apostle Paul is already two steps ahead of us because he's already thought about this. This is a behavioral truth, but the Apostle Paul has thought about it because he said, don't offer yourselves as instruments to wickedness, but instead what I want you to do is rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Now, trust me, I'm saying this firmly, but I get this. I'm saying it firmly because I get this in part. Uh, As somebody who is a tried and true introvert, as somebody who largely gets to make up his own schedule during the course of a week, as somebody who easily gets lost in his own thoughts and those thoughts tend to drift fairly negatively, I totally get this type of temptation. What you have to do is you have to program your life full of the righteousness of Christ. Let the Spirit lead you. Choose the gracious path of Jesus Christ laid out before you Consider your identity. Consider your status. Count yourself in Christ Jesus. I am bought with the blood of Jesus. I have been delivered not only from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin. Every day, I remember, remind yourself that uh, I was saved specifically by Christ in order that I would not sin. Remind yourself that Christ purified for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good, and I am in that people. You have to remind yourself. Count it every day. The Bible repeatedly tells examples of people who are like this, who are able to do this. God's instruments, God's vessels. You think throughout the Bible, simul justus et peccator was a phrase we used a couple weeks ago. That was Martin Luther's phrase. Simultaneously justified and a sinner. A righteous sinner. Somebody that says, yes, I am a broken vessel, but Jesus, you have made me whole, and believe it or not, you can even resurrect me to use me today for your purposes. And the Bible is chock full of examples like that. So God can use somebody like Moses, and he can take the rod in Moses' hand and use it to conquer the most powerful nation on earth in Egypt. And he can take uh, the, the, the little slingshot in little old David shepherd boy's hand, and he can slay a giant, and he can bring down the Philistines. And he can use the trembling mouths of prophets to proclaim truth out into the world that we continue to study thousands of years later. And he can use the feet of a Christian persecutor like Saul of Tarsus to become a missionary around the Mediterranean world and revolutionize the Roman Empire. And he can use the eyes of an old and aging man like the Apostle John to vision the future so that everybody knows exactly what is coming to them. God will absolutely use you as an instrument to his glory if you let him. And here's one of the ways that you lock yourself into this. This is going to sound, this is very practical. Some of what we talk about is theological, some of it is philosophical. This is just a very practical step. One of the ways that you put, to death, put sin to death and commit to righteousness is, I'm going to call it social contracts. I don't mean political, social, but social contracts. Uh, some of you know I listen, I listen to a lot of podcasts. In the past couple of weeks, uh, two different guys, neither one of them Christian, have brought up the exact same point. Uh, One of them is a neuroscientist by the name of Sam Harris, and one of them is a clinical psychologist by the name of Jordan Peterson. Both of them have said the main way to make transformational life changes is by way of what he called, what they both called, 
social contracts. Now, I believe that there, if you want to make changes in your life, you have to tell it to somebody else and have them hold you accountable. That's the way changes are behaviorally made. And I think that is just tapping into the biblical truth that James, told, the brother of Jesus, tells us all the way back in James chapter 5 when he says, confess your sins to one another. Social contracts. Tell others. Confess your struggles. Commit to righteousness. Ask them to pray for you and encourage you and hold you accountable. As a Christian, if you want to make legitimate changes in your life, you have to confess your sins. You have to verbally commit to righteousness. Um, let me give you an example. It's a slightly different example, but years ago, my sister who was uh, wrestling with, battling a bunch of uh, weight issues, and she joined Weight Watchers, and she lost 125 pounds. 125 pounds. I don't know if you, any of us realize this unless you've done it. How hard. There's, I've never done anything in my life that is more impressive uh, than that. L losing 125 pounds. It's amazing. I was incredibly proud of her. And I said, how did you do that? You know what she said? She said, well, you know, you have to get on a scale every week in front of the same women. And it's fairly motivating. Now, there's no reason why Weight Watchers and AA and all those other accountability groups should be so far ahead of the accountability gift that God specifically gave to the Christian church. Social contracts. Share with one another. We're in our second week of those growth groups. It's time for the superficialities to go away and you need to open up and you need to start sharing with other people what your fears are and what your hopes are and what your dreams are and what you're struggling with. And the moment you get that out there, I'll tell you what, there's something incredibly powerful about simply confessing and getting struggles out there. Because, see, what actually happens internally, the way a psychologist would describe it, is now that you know your reputation is at stake, because you've said, I'm going to accomplish this particular act, and other people's perceptions of you are dependent on your ability to carry out that act, it becomes massively motivating. By God's design, as social creatures, use that. If you need to make, need to make changes as Christians, go ahead, tell another Christian. Go ahead, put it online. Go ahead, write it down on your connection card tonight and say, Pastor Hine, I am struggling with this in my life and I could certainly use your prayers. And simply by putting it out there and getting it out there, it creates a spiritually driven power inside of you that enables you to take some steps to help overcome some of that. Uh, you, can't, you can't slay the dragon until you get it out of its cave. So you got to get it out there. Why? Why? To earn our salvation? Of course not. If you think that we die to our sins and die to ourselves and offer ourselves as instruments of righteousness in order to earn our salvation in any way, shape, or form, you need to stop with this message and you go back and you reread chapters 1 through 4 of Romans because you've forgotten the fact that of what Paul has said there. You've forgotten that our status before God is gifted and our identity before God is free redemption and our righteousness before God comes apart from any of our obedience to the law. No, the transformation that the Apostle Paul is talking about here becomes, comes because we are united to Jesus Christ. And because of the, by the power of his grace, we can now choose. And sin doesn't have to rule over our lives anymore. Let's pray. Lord, we're all struggling with sin to varying degrees and with various sins. 
sin, which you, by grace, don't actually even count against us. But it's because you don't count it against us. It's because we're united to you. We absolutely want to kill it. So give us the courage to take the necessary steps to the glory of your name. Amen.